0: We're entering into the fifth chapter of Ephesians now. Ephesians chapter 5 and we begin reading from verse 1 and the passage that we'll be looking at this evening is verse 1 through to verse 7 and we've entitled our message the Christian the divine impersonator verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, partakers with them. In our very first message in chapter 1 and verse 1 of this book many months ago, we looked in quite much detail at the city of Ephesus and what it meant to live in Paul's day in the city of Ephesus. And if you were to go to Ephesus today, you could walk through that little town as it has been excavated. And parts of that old ancient city have been found. I'm told that you can walk down a street of marble. You can look around you at buildings that people once lived in and businesses that they once worked from. And bit by bit, archaeologists are restoring the city of Ephesus. And as they uncover that great city they are finding that the grandeur of it is something that surpasses perhaps any city that is alive today. It was a metropolis, a great place of significance in the ancient Roman world. But as they are uncovering these great things about this ancient city, they are also finding that there was great vileness, great sin, and great iniquity that took place within it. In fact, I'm told that as you walk down that marble street in the middle of that city, that they have uncovered signs that Soho in London or any other red light district in the world has nothing to touch. Indeed, if you were a sailor coming into Ephesus and you walked right into the city, there were signs inviting you to partake of freely, absolutely freely of the temple prostitutes in that city free prostitution to any travellers. Within the temple of Artemis, the virgin goddess, there were ritualistic prostitutes. And they were there, and they were paid money by men and women within that civilization to have ritualistic sexual intercourse to worship their deity. If that's not enough to speak of the vileness of it, The thing that perhaps comes home to us the most about how iniquitous this place is, is the fact that there was nothing seen to be wrong with all of that civilization and practices of it. The donations that were given by the men paying for the ritualistic prostitutes, they didn't keep them. But they donated them to the temple, and the temple was looked after and the maintenance of it by the money that was taken in from this ritualistic religious prostitution. Some might say that prostitution is the oldest profession in the world. And the do-gooders, as many would say, are shouting about how it represents the worst in all of modern decay in society. But the fact remains is that here in the city of Ephesus, to be a prostitute of this kind was a great honor in society. It was extremely honorable for you to be in a profession bringing money and indeed serving the community in the town and even your religion to build up the temple and to build up worship to the goddess Diana. Nothing seemed to be wrong with it. In fact, as far as they were concerned, in a philosophical sense, they had united the lust of the flesh with religion so that the desires and appetites of a man could be swallowed up in a religious ritual. And it didn't seem to be as sinful. As far as they were concerned, Diana and her religion was able to meet the need of body, soul, and spirit. Now, as you look at this backdrop and this context You can understand why a passage that we're reading tonight was so revolutionary to these Ephesians. They thought nothing wrong with this ritualistic prostitution, with the worship of their fertility God in this manner within the temple. It was normal. And therefore, when Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, and in Paul, and in this little epistle, comes and tells them the sexual ethics of the Christian church, it rocks them. What to them seemed necessary, seemed commendable, seemed acceptable to God was sin. And you can see the demarcation line, and it's not between religion and non-religion. But the demarcation line is between pagan religion and God's faith. And this is where Christianity, Bible-believing Christianity, stands above all the rest, at least one of the ways it stands above, in its Christian sexual ethic. It is the only faith that dictates and commands chastity outside of the marriage bond and relationship. The only faith that lays it down. Why then do Christians... Paul into sexual sin one writer says that it's the cookie jar syndrome it's the little boy whose mummy's just made some cookies and they're lovely and warm and smelling and she puts them into the cookie jar and sets them up on the kitchen bench She goes away to do a few messages and comes in and she finds the little boy with his hand dug deep into the cookie jar. And red-faced and embarrassed, he turns around to his mother and he says, My hand is in the cookie jar resisting temptation. Isn't that where we are at times? We are in the world trying to resist temptation. The disciples said to the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And one of the statements within that prayer of the disciples was, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I say it again. That we pray that God may not lead us into temptation, but we lead ourselves in. We find ourselves with the hand in the cookie jar, and then we fall into sin. Whatever type of sin it is, and we ask the question, why did that happen? And we are living in a society of the cookie jar. Through media, through newspapers, magazines, television, advertising, Even in the workplace, in family life now, and even in the Church of Jesus Christ, we are bombarded by an environment of sinfulness, idolatry, adultery, fornication—all sorts of sins are treated as the norm. And when, even in the Church, we stand and tell what God's ethic and rules are concerning the sexual realm, we're a fuddy-duddy. We're a puritan. We are Victorian. You know what we need? We need a revival in holiness. There is a revival of sin. But we need a revival of holiness. This book I continually recommend to you. And I'm going to recommend it until you all read it. At the beginning of one of the chapters in Power Through Prayer, Ian Bounds, quotes John Wesley, and I've quoted this before, but I'm quoting it again because it never ceases to thrill me. Listen. He said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. God does nothing but an answer to prayer. Is that what you want to be? Can you pray like McShane? Oh God, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. Listen, that is the secret. That will bring an awesome revival to the church of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel itself, now listen to what I am saying. The gospel itself has no inherent power of itself. But it moves as men filled with the Holy Ghost and men of holiness move with it. I don't need to tell you that the effectiveness of the gospel message has more to do with the holiness of the one who is preaching it than the words that he is saying. I believe that with all my heart. That is why Bounds could say within his book, it takes 20 years to make a sermon because it takes 20 years to make the man. How can we be holy, you might say? In a sin-sick world. In a world that is intoxicated and saturated with all types and kinds of filthiness. Well, here is the answer within our passage this evening. First of all, the way to be holy is to imitate the divine being. Look at verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Again, we see Paul. Using this little word, therefore, be ye therefore. And we've learnt week after week to look back when Paul says that and look back to what he is is pointing back to. He's been talking in chapter 4, the last... Two verses, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We looked last week at how we're to put off the old clothes, and this is the wardrobe of the Spirit of God that we are to adorn ourselves within. We're to put away lying, we're to put away stealing, we're to put away all sinfulness of the old nature that has died with Christ, and we are now to put on the love of God in Christ Jesus therefore Paul says to do that you must be a follower of God as dear children the word follower in the authorized version would be better translated it literally means imitator be therefore imitators of God The Greek word for imitator is the word that we get our English word mimic from. To mimic or to copy something. And what it denotes is an actor. An actor who spends time, spends all his energies and efforts in studying a character with the view to reproducing it. You got it? Be imitators of God. In the Old Testament Scriptures, God told the children of Israel these words. They're familiar to many of you. Ye shall put away out of the camp of Israel every leper. Put away out of the camp of Israel every leper. He went on to say, any kind of vile, infectious disease, put it out. And he was saying that not just for the safety of those who hadn't been infected by it yet, but the reason, the primary reason why God told them to put out from among them all uncleanness is found as the very foundation of the whole Old Testament law of God. Listen, God had said to his people, Be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That was the legal dispensation. That spoke of physical defilement, leprosy, all kinds of diseases outwardly or inwardly within the body. But now we are in the dispensation of grace. And what it speaks to us is of the uncleanness of the flesh, of the soul, and of the spirit. We, as those who are to imitate God, are to put away from us all uncleanness. And this is a part of the law that has been repeated for us in the New Testament. For Peter repeats it, 1 Peter 1, 16, Be ye holy, even as the Lord your God is holy. Do we imitate God in our holiness? What is the motive for this imitation? It's given in verse 1, as dear children any of you that have children or have been among children for a while will note the way they imitate adults don't they they watch daddy driving the car and all of a sudden you turn around and you see him moving the steering wheel and changing the gears and pulling up the brakes imitating you hear them imitating many things bad words they have a pencil sticking out of their mouth and they're smoking they pretend to drink They're doing all sorts of things, and psychologists tell us that the things that they learn through life, many of them, most of them, are learnt as they are children. Do you see the connection? Paul says, You are the children of God. Here is your heavenly, holy Father. You imitate him as you imitated your earthly Father. three admonitions that Paul gives in this passage, which lasts right down to verse 17. He says, first of all, God is love. We know that, don't we? Because God is love, he asks us in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, Walk in love. Your heavenly Father is a God of love. You are his children, therefore you walk in love as your heavenly Father. Then he says, God is light. And in verses 3 to 14, he says, Because your heavenly Father is light, you're his children, you walk as children of light. Then he says, God is truth. And in verse 15 to 17, he says, Therefore, because God is truth, you're his children, walk in the wisdom of the truth of the word of God. And all of those walks or an outcome of chapter 4 and verse 1, which is the walk that they are to walk worthy of in the calling with which they are called. There are folk in this meeting tonight, and they have children that are wayward. They have no thought of God. They have no thought of Christ. They have no thought of holiness. And at this moment of time, they are deep, Satury, the drowning in the world and what is it doing to your heart it's breaking it we learned last week that when the child of god walks in sinful ways it grieves the holy spirit is your heart grieved for a loved one can you imagine how God's heart is grave for us when we walk and we do not imitate him or we imitate the world around us. How are we to live holy in this evil and wicked and adulterous generation? God says, imitate me and you shall be holy. The second thing he tells us to do is in verse 2. He says, emulate the love of Christ. Walk in the love of As Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savour. Verse 31 and 32 of the previous chapter, you see, is a great contrast to what he's just said in verse 2. In verse 31, he's talking about bitterness, unholy wrath, and anger, and clamour, and evil speaking. He tells them, put it away from you. And what are you to put into the place of all that unseemly sinfulness? It is to walk in love. The antithesis, the opposite of all those sins that he has talked about. The Greek word for love here is the word agape. It is the word depicting the love of God. Not filio, which is a love between brothers and friends. Not eros which is that sexual attraction between a man and a woman, but agape. We are to walk in the love of God, shedding the love of God from our hearts to other believers and unbelievers around us. And this is what marked the early church of Jesus Christ. Behold, they love one another. And indeed, everything was surrounded by love. They lived together. Everything they owned was with one another. They shared it with everyone. Indeed, the breaking of bread was called in those early days the love faith. Love characterized the church in early times. And the reason for that is that Christ is and always shall be our perfect example, the example that we are to follow. God says, be followers, imitators of God, and here you have proof of the Trinity. For in verse 2, one minute, verse 1, he's telling us, imitate God, and verse 2, he tells us, to walk as Christ is well. What more proof do you need? How did Christ walk? He tells us. He gave himself... An offering a sacrifice for sin. The greatest proof of the love of Christ is that Christ laid down his life for us at Calvary's cross. That he gave himself for us. And we love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us. And God... Our Heavenly Father showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he demonstrated his love for us in that Christ died for us. And Paul is saying, this is how you imitate God. You imitate God by a walk of holiness, and that walk of holiness will be exemplified in a walk of love for other people, just as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loved you and gave Himself for you. God's love is always displayed by the action of giving. In John 3 and 16, that very famous gospel text, it says, For God so loved that he gave. And in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we find God giving. God gives life to all mankind. In the second book, the book of Exodus, we find God gives his law to mankind. In the book of Joshua, we find that God gives land to his own people to live in and to have shelter and protection and joy in. In the book of Psalms, we find that God gives his people strength and comfort through these prayers and songs of Zion. In the Gospels, we find that the Father sends the Son to be the Savior of the world. He gives his only begotten Son. Then in the book of Acts, he sends at Pentecost his Spirit. He gives another Comforter. And finally, in the book of Revelation, he gives hope. For we are not as others who sorrow without hope. But we have a blessed hope whereby we comfort one another with these words that the Lord shall burst through the clouds and we shall go to be with him forever. What a hope. Do you see how our Lord and our God is a giving God? He loves to give. And we are to walk in his example. We are to give as he gave Christ and as Christ gave his life at the place called Calvary. 1 John 3.16 We are also... To lay our lives down for the brethren. Again in chapter 2 and verse 6. We are told. Walk as he walked." I wonder do we realize the impact. Of what a life of love does. Upon a life of an unbeliever. Do you know the story of the Orca Indians. And their conversion in South America. You've maybe read read the book of Jim Elliot. In January 1956, five young American missionaries were killed, martyred for their faith, trying to reach these Orca Indians with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, at this moment of time, their five killers are Christians. Their five killers are pillars within the church of Jesus Christ in that particular part of the country. Indeed, the house of prayer where they called it the place where God speaks was built by those five killers right on the spot where they martyred those missionaries. And how did that happen? How was there such a revolutionary change from being ones who martyred men of God to becoming men of God themselves? You know what happened? Rachel Saint, the sister of the martyred missionary Nate Saint, Betty Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliott. Went back to those who had killed their loved ones. And demonstrated the love of Christ to them. Does that not blow your mind? That is the love of Christ. They were laying their lives down so that they might win others. And the gift here that's talked about in verse 2 is the gift of Christ. It's spoken of, look at it, as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. And this is the amazing thing. It doesn't say that that Christ was a gift to the world. There are other scriptures we could turn to tonight to show that he was a gift to the world for salvation. But that's not what this verse says. It says that Christ gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. An offering... Is anything given to God? Sacrifice involves death. And this gift of an offering to God and the gift of a sacrifice to God by Jesus Christ is eulogized in this statement that it was an offering and a sacrifice to God. Look for a sweet-smelling savour. Lord Jesus Christ, as He hung at Calvary's cross, was the true burnt offering. He was the total, complete, obedient sacrifice for sin to God, and that sacrifice there at Calvary ascended unto God as a sweet smelling savor. Do you know what the high priest used to do on the day of atonement, as he was about to enter into the holy place? he would take in one hand a, a bundle of sweet-smelling incense off the golden table of incense. And in his other hand he would lift the censer filled with fire and he would walk beyond the veil. And as he went through into the presence of God, he would take that incense and pour it upon that torch. The fire was lit from the burnt offering altar and as he sprinkled it upon that fire there would arise in that place such a smoke of a savour of a fragrance and it would cover the Ark of the Covenant it would cover the mercy seat the reason was to present to God a sweet smell from the sin offering of propitiation In Leviticus, in chapters one to three, we have the offerings in the Word of God. We find there the offerings of a sweet savor unto God, and there are only three kinds of them. First of all, there is the burnt offering. Secondly, there is the meal offering, and thirdly, there is the peace offering. And the burnt offering was a sweet-smelling savour that pictured complete and utter devotion. The whole of that animal was burned unto God as a sweet-smelling savour. And it wasn't an offering for any particular sin or any laws that were particularly broken or, or, or transgressed. But all that was, was a sent to go to God to please God at the fact that blood had been shed and had made sin the victim and Christ the victor. And what a savour of joy that was to God. And then there was a the meal offering which spoke of the perfection of God. In his son, his image, his stamp, his express person of purity that could not be defiled. And what an offering to God that was. And then there was the peace offering that spoke of reconciliation between God and the sinner that rose as a sweet smelling savor to God. And all of these brought joy to the heart of God. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ offered himself to God. This is purely a part of the crucifixion that was to God. And the sweetness of it was that he offered himself without reservation. That's what was sweet to God. Don't believe any nonsense that he almost withdrew in the garden of Gethsemane. Don't believe any nonsense that is taught from pulpits and books in this day and age in which we live that the Lord Jesus Christ was troubled with sin all through his life. God forgive them. He was an offering of a sweet-smelling savor. Adam couldn't do it, and he failed. And every man since Adam failed. But the last Adam was victorious. He is the only man that could be said to bring a sweet-smelling savor to God in his obedience, in his purity. And this is the point that Paul is bringing to us, in his forgiveness. The forgiveness that he purchased at the cross through that sweet-smelling savor, we are to walk in that way of forgiveness with our brothers and sisters in Christ. As F.B. Mark put it, In love so measureless, so reckless of cost for those who were naturally so unworthy of it, there was a spectacle which filled heaven with the fragrance and God's heart with joy. And it is this, that God could now be reconciled to the sinner. And because of that, my friend, you ought to be reconciled to them as well. We ought to walk as he walked. And he said, through his spirit greater love hath no man than this than a man lays down his life for his friends do you want to be holy imitate God in his love and lay down your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ the poet put it well when he said others Lord yes others let this my motto be help me to live for others that I may live like thee Lord let my life be given And every moment spent for God, for souls, for heaven, and all earth's ties be rent. Thou givest thyself for me, now I give all for thee. How to be holy? Thirdly, separate from sexual sin. I'm glad to say that the doctrine of separation from the world is still part of the Church of Jesus Christ, because it's still part of the Word of God. But whether it is being practiced is another issue. But certainly, we find within the New Testament that there is to be a separation from the world in sexual immorality and their ethic system. Verse eight of this passage that we'll start to look at next week says that we are to walk as children of light. In verse three. Paul gives us the reason why we are to shun sexual immorality. The last word, as becometh saints. The word saint simply means someone who is set apart. Someone who has been brought from the darkness and deadness of sin into the life and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it primarily means someone who has been chosen, someone who has been separated to live a holy life. If you don't want to live a holy life you must forget about christianity for that's what it is a holy life before god and paul warns us to shun the world and he gives us the various types of sin that we are to avoid first of all he says but fornication look at that word fornication it literally means illicit sex among unmarried in the community But here it means more than that. Not simply that act of sexual intercourse outside the marriage bond. But it means here in this context, any form of sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornea. It's the word that we get our English word pornography from. Any illicit sexual activity at all. He shows us that by a second description, fornication and all uncleanness. And that broadens the sense. It means immoral acts, impure thoughts and pictures, art depicting impurity and sin, obscene books and other suggestive material, anything indecent, and effectively anything that feeds that old beastly desire and passion within us. All right, let's name them tabloids slick magazines that make the reader grovel in the dirt of the lives of the stars soap operas taking pleasure in iniquity my friend we can practice in these things only if we ignore the word of God thirdly he says covetousness Generally speaking, when we talk of coveting, we think of the lust of money. But literally, covetous means, the Greek word literally means overreaching. And it means to have essential or any desire or lust for anything. It it speaks of an appetite. An insatiable lust and greed to satisfy the appetites of the body and of the soul. And that can be seen right back in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. God said, thou shalt not covet. And one of the things he said not to covet was thy neighbor's wife. It is all sorts of lust. Fornication. Uncleanness. Covetousness. Paul says, Let it not once be named among you as becometh saints. Not once. You could say, Well, you've just named it tonight. That's not what Paul is meaning. But Paul means, Never let it be named having been committed. It should never be mentioned as happening within the church of Jesus Christ. And I would go further. I believe Paul is actually saying here, nor should these things be discussed in a way that might lessen their sinful, shameful character and make you or tempt you to fall from holiness. I believe the devil's strategy within the church is to get believers to talk and speak of sin in a light manner. And then what they are doing today is they're beginning to excuse sin in their lives and in the church. And the next step of that familiarity with sin will be to commit the sin itself. Paul is saying, don't even dwell too long or look too intricately into the sin or eventually you may fall yourself. The old English poet Alexander Pope put it well when he said this. Vice is a monster of such frightful Mayan. That to be hated needs but to be seen. In other words, if you're going to hate vice, it's got to be seen for what it is. But listen to what he says in his next verse. But seen too often, familiar with his face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. That is the awfulness of sin. And we are not to name it among us as being committed. We are not even to dwell or talk about these things. Why? Because as Paul says, it doesn't become saints of God's holiness. He moves from actions in verse 3 to speech and thoughts in verse 4. Look at it. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving thanks. Warren Wearsby says... There are two indications of a person's character. What makes him laugh and what makes him weep. And here we have it. Filthiness. Foolish talking, jesting, which are not convenient. What is filthiness? Listen, it's dirty stories. It's suggestive jokes anything with sexual coloring or forms of obscenity or indecency, we ought not as the saints of God to have them on our lips or in our minds. And then he says foolish talking. The Greek word is morologia. Logia comes from logos, which means word. And moron, we use that word, moron. Don't we? Moron Talking. Foolish talking. Talking about empty things. Moronic talk. Empty conversation. Vain questions and debating. Talking without thinking. Open your mouth without putting your brain in gear. Saying something you don't really mean. Speaking without wisdom. Speaking and not considering the results of what you say. That is all foolish talking. And then thirdly. He speaks of jesting. Now I want to say this. He's not talking about all types of humor and jokes. For the Bible says, and the book of Proverbs tells us, that laughter is like a good medicine. And Indeed, it said that a good laugh is like a jog now, an inner jog. So I'm going to try and laugh as much as I can from now on. There's nothing wrong with laughing. But it is what we are laughing at. And here we have Paul telling us, the Holy Spirit, that all coarse jokes, unsavory talk with hidden meanings. This literally is translated this, able to turn easily. Now what does that mean? You know what it is to be like in the conversation of a man or a woman. And you make a quite innocent remark and can't see any harm in it. But they are able to turn it on its head and make it something else. Double talk innuendo and my friend as the children of God we are to have nothing with this nothing with insinuation but you know I wonder has Paul got a further meaning in this where he talks about people who can turn around in their conversation easily it is the man in the office or the man fiddling with a spanner underneath a car or the man or the woman in the factory who is able to talk their talk by day and come into the church of Jesus Christ and talk the church talk at the weekend. My friend, the word of God is teaching us that these are not children of God if this is the way people live. A famous preacher on one occasion was coming from a conference and he was invited to a big grand house for his lunch and he was sitting in the drawing room with a great company of mixed people. And all of a sudden one of the ladies said let's go ladies and help the hostess with the lunch and they all got up and went out and it was only the men there one of the men walked in and said man I've got to tell you this story I've heard today while the ladies are gone and this preacher's friend piped up and he said hold on a minute brother there may be no more ladies in this room but the Holy Spirit of God is in this room and he can be offended greater than the most sensitive woman that you have ever met is that how we talk not to grieve the Holy Spirit you know what we're to use our tongue for look at the verse for thanksgiving rather giving of thanks now this is the the pinnacle and I want you to hear this please and I know that this must be for us tonight verse 5 For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. There's the Trinity again. The kingdom of Christ and of God. One kingdom, one God. Now listen. If you habitually live a life of unholiness, God has reserved hell for you. That's what this is saying. This isn't talking about the judgment seat, about losing and reward or anything, or getting second place. If you live a life of sin, it is hell. That's the Bible. My friend, if it is without Christ, Or any form of idolatry. And the reason why Paul uses the term idolatry. Describing these three things that he's already described in verse 3. He's just repeating them. And he calls covetousness idolatry. Why? Because it is worshipping the creature rather than the creator. It is living a life as if there is no God. Now listen. If you're here this evening and you're not saved, you mightn't think it, but you're living life as if there's no God because you've rejected his gift of love, his son. And you need him. He is the only one who will get you to glory. It is his blood. It is his sacrifice that was a sweet-smelling savor to God that is the only thing that will get you to glory. And if you don't have him, you don't have heaven. You have hell. the world is lenient on sin and the world today has a tolerant attitude towards sin and if you don't gratify your desires you'll become some kind of repressive inhibited warped individual it's cultural therefore let's make it legal everybody accepts it and even in the church of jesus christ men so-called of the cloth are condoning it and practicing it and god says to us in our generation today let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. God judged the world in a flood. He judged Israel for adultery when they lay 24,000, 24,000 wiped off the feet of the earth because they lay in adultery with Moab. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin of sodomy, homosexuality. And my friend, there is a day coming when God will judge this world for its sin and it is ripe unto judgment. He says, marriage is honorable and bed and defiled. But whoremongers, adulterers, God will judge. Are you saved? Are you saved? For if you're not, God's going to judge you. believer are you holy because God's going to judge you too but what a note that Paul could say and such were some of you but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now let's go away tonight. Let us walk as saints. Let us walk in a holy life. Let us walk as the children of of light and of life. And as he finishes in verse 7, let us therefore be no partakers with them in anything. And let us shine forth the glory of our Heavenly Father. Father in the way that we live our lives. Our Father, we remember how the High Priest of God had written upon his forehead, Holiness to the Lord. And Lord, we know that we are accepted in the well-beloved and in his righteousness and in his holiness. But yet, Lord, it is only his life flowing through us that will be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight. Therefore, we pray that we will put to death daily that old man and that we will let the new man in Christ Jesus shine through us that men and women around us may see our good works and glorify our father which is in heaven Lord make us a holy people and conform us unto the image of thy dear son to be like Jesus to be like Jesus All we ask is to be like him. Amen.